Welcome to the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. Bruce, it's Super Bowl week. Well, Stu, then we got to get a big time guest. Who do you think we should get? We're under a lot of pressure here because I got to say, while I was out sick last week, and by the way, still not fully recovered, this is the longest cold I've ever had in my life, your Manny Diaz interview was a huge hit, and people are saying maybe one of the best interviews we've ever had, so how do we follow that up? We better get a big name, somebody who's a good storyteller, rack your brain, Stu. Oh, I know who you have in mind. Without further ado, we are pleased to be joined by our old colleague and probably one of our favorite guests. Dave Wanstat, coach, the first thing I want to talk to you about, it's Super Bowl week. You have an interesting connection to this Patriots-Rams matchup in that you were the one when you were the head coach at, at Pittsburgh who recruited Aaron Donald. And Stu, I did a little digging back. Aaron Donald, best player arguably in the NFL, certainly the most dominant defensive player, only ranked as a three-star recruit and uh, ranked as the 30th best offensive tackle. Coach, who did you beat out to get him? You, you know what? Yeah, it might have been like Temple. I mean, there were no major Division One schools, and I think the biggest thing was his height. And people still bring that up, you know, that was he six foot, and um, you know everybody's looking for that six three, six four defensive lineman. And uh, you know, fortunately, I had a lot of experience with guys. Aaron Donald's size. I had Russell Maryland, as you remember, Bruce, down at your alma mater at Miami. And then I had Chris Zorich, you know, when I was at the Bears. So in our scheme of defense, you know, the strengths and the abilities that Aaron Donald had, as far as his quickness and his leverage and his awareness, uh, that was perfect what we were looking for. So he was, uh, and you know, another interesting story, I was actually at dinner last night with one of the most high, uh, successful high school coaches, not just in Pennsylvania, but in the country. His name is Jim Render. He just retired. And I remember talking to him that year, and he was at one of the big schools in Western PA. And I said, who, who do you like? I used to ask all the high school coaches, you know, what a, who'd you go against that really jumped on it? And he said, there's a kid at Penn Hills High School that not many people are talking about. He says, I've never seen a defensive lineman ruin our entire offensive game plan like this kid did, and it was Aaron Donald. So, you know, I, I think we did our homework, and, um, you know, it uh, it worked out. Now, did I think he was going to be as good as he is today? Absolutely not. But I'll tell you what happened. I was adamant about redshirting him as a freshman because we had Jabal Sheard and Greg Romius. We had a bunch of guys, Mick Williams, that, that played in the NFL, and it was probably a week into training camp when our defensive line coach, Greg Gattuso, came up to me and he said, have you been watching Aaron Donald? And I said, yeah. I said, he's making some plays. And he says, coach, we got to play him. We got to get him in the rotation. He says, I don't think we can redshirt him. So we ended up playing him and he, he played for us as a true freshman. So I just want to ask you, you mentioned Russell Maryland. You obviously were around a bunch of great defensive linemen. Cortez Kennedy, when you were at Miami, was this massive guy. You've had, you know, the guys you had in Dallas and certainly the guys you were around as a, as a young coach at Pitt. Now, when you watch Aaron Donald, is he just because he's so freakishly explosive, just a different dynamic, or is it because the style of play is different? What do you see in him no. compared to all the other guys you've been around? You know what? He's more instinctive than any of them. You know, Cortez was more powerful. Russell was smart. You know, Russell studied it like a like a quarterback, but 
Aaron Donald, I mean, the guy can be being blocked one way, and he always knows where the football is. And that's something, you know, a lot of coaches will talk about that at clinics, but I'm going to tell you guys that you don't coach that. That's something that, you know, is a God-given instinct. And he, you watch him run up the field. He knows just when to stop and turn back into the quarterback. He can be coming off the ball on a running play, and he knows exactly does he have to go to his right or his left because that's where the football is. So those instincts are something that uh, that I think Aaron has that better than than all those other guys. You know, obviously they're Hall of Fame players. You know, Aaron Donald in today's game. I think you got to think about this, guys. In today's game, with the ball being thrown as quick as it is, it's so hard, in my opinion, to get sacked. And for him to put up the numbers that he's putting up, I don't think we'll ever see that again out of a defensive tackle. I mean, everything, you know, your tackles aren't even supposed to be your sack guys. So there's a lot of things that this kid does that, you know, you better enjoy it because you're going to not see it very often. Coach, I wanted to get your perspective on coaching in the Super Bowl. You've come on here in the past and told us some great stories about coaching in the Miami-Penn State Fiesta Bowl and the infamous 3-0 Sun Bowl. So what can you tell us, you know, about what it's like to be there? This was the year the Cowboys just crushed the Bills out at the uh, Rose Bowl. You were a defensive coordinator. Like, you know, I know it's NFL instead of college, but, you know, we see it, you know, from afar, and it just seems like, uh, you know, it's a... you know, complete spectacle. So what's it like to coach in that game? Right. Well, well you know what's interesting is that, and I, I'm the last guy that I think they put in a rule. I don't know what they call it now. But I actually, we had the week off before we played Buffalo, as you mentioned. And I went out and accepted the job with the Bears. Obviously, Jimmy Johnson was not, he was concerned that if I waited till after the Super Bowl that the jobs would be filled up. So I went out and I had interviews going on and I accepted the Bears job the week before the Super Bowl and had my press conference. So it was so strange because I uh, I was I was working for I was a head coach of the Bears and the assistant head coach of the Cowboys and defensive coordinator. And I and so I was wor- working two jobs and it really, you know what, at the end of the day, it really bothered me because all the functions at night that were going on and, and with the families and all that stuff, you know where I was at? After we were done, I was on the phone trying to line up my staff for the Bears. And so I missed, you know, a lot of the fun stuff that goes on early in the week at the Super Bowl. I didn't get a chance to really enjoy. And, and then I'll tell you guys a funny story, you know, and you guys know how close Jimmy and I were. And, and Jimmy was you know, excited that I got the job and he did everything I could to help me get a job. But now I come back and he doesn't say anything to me. He's kind of quiet and we're getting ready for the bills and we're on the field and he's kind of giving me one word answers. And, uh, and it was always a tradition when practice was over, we were going back to the hospitality room, have a couple beers, talk about practice. What do we got to try to do tomorrow? Better, less, whatever. So I said, you going for beers or that? And he says, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm passing. So the next day I was kind of the guy that was always in charge of making sure that everybody was on the buses, you know, and everything, everything was set before we left places. And, but the same token, Jimmy was driving around in a limo and everywhere we went, I was always the one guy that was in the limo with him from practice back and forth. So we get out there for the first practice and uh, 
I'm standing there and I'm sending the buses on one, two, and Jimmy does his press conference or whatever. And as I'm walking over to get in the limo, the door slams and takes off. And I end up jumping on the fourth bus, which was the injured players <laughs> and riding that back to the hotel. And, and we really didn't talk except when we had to that entire week. So finally, it was about Wednesday, and I remember going up to him, and I said, hey, we're going to get some nachos. If you want to get a few beers, you've got to say something, because otherwise, you know, it, it, I, I'm done. You know, because I'd, like, asked him every day. And so we really did not talk much unless it was game plan on the field. Socially, there was no interaction almost the whole week. It was strange. Strange for a lot of reasons. But the end result was good. Bruce, a couple of little pieces of trivia about this Super Bowl that I just came across that are going to blow your mind, okay? All right. We'll see if Coach remembers any of this. I know you, you were busy coaching, but the halftime show, Michael Jackson. Yep. Yes, one of the best. Do you, you get to catch any of that? No, I did not, but I was told. Yep. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the cost of a 30-second commercial was $850,000. Which is notable because I just saw that this year it is $5 million for a 30-second commercial. And wow. the, the pregame coin toss, you know this one, Coach? No. O.J. Simpson. Shit, wow. I know this. You know how much I made for all of our playoff games and NFC Championship games and Super Bowl? I think we put $70,000 in our pocket total. 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 I don't know what it is now, 250 or something, you know? Yeah. So uh, everything was different. You know, it was funny. I no one. They, I'm sure they told me, but I didn't pay attention. I didn't realize that the pregame from when you left the field to when we kicked off was like five minutes longer because they had to clear the had to do some extra stuff, you know, for pregame uh, festivities, whatever. So I had my routine. I would go leave the field exact same time on warmups. I knew how long it was going to have to take me to get in the locker room grab my game plans and all my notes, get on the elevator, get up in the press box, have a cigarette or two. I'd always take about four cigarettes with me, have a cigarette or two, and then bang, here come the team. I'd sit down, and now here we go. Game on, let's go. So we get out there, and I leave same time, and I completely slip my mind or no one told me or whatever, and I get up in the press box, and I have my one cigarette, and I'm like, I went through my four cigarettes, and the team still wasn't on. I was a mess. I mean, before the game, I'm like, I'd have sink, you know. I'm not hyper superstitious, but enough. And and then all of a sudden, here comes the Jets overhead, and and it's game on. So I, uh, God, it was it. Now that I look back on it, it, it was a it was a different week for me. That's for sure. Coach, you mentioned the cigarettes. It dawned on me. So there's a really famous picture that still circulates about Len Dawson smoking during. I believe it's like one of the first Super Bowl or the second Super Bowl. So back in that, and your era is different than that. That was the 60s. But do you remember players smoking at halftime at all? No, I, I don't remember players smoking. But I remember our first game, we played the Raiders. And in L.A., we were with the Cowboys. And it, we caught, it was an August, you know, first preseason game. First, first game ever as an NFL coach. And we caught the Santa Ana winds, I guess, and it, it was 100 degrees. I mean, it was a death march. And we had come from, you know, obviously Dallas. And I remember 
the players, you know, were, were, it, it was hot and everybody, and we went in at halftime and guys were getting the towels and some guys were getting the IVs. And I remember walking over and too tall. Ed Jones was sitting there and he had a big gulp, a 24 ounce cup of steaming hot black coffee. And he was drinking that stuff like somebody should have been drinking Gatorade. And he was just gulping it down. And I remember looking at him and I, you know, thinking, geez, Ed, you know, I don't even know if you're going to play the second half. I, you know, I hope you got, you know, but he was, uh, oh, that was my, uh, that that was an eye opener for me. I never saw the smoking, but a big hot cup of coffee on a ninety degree day to kind of keep the motor running. Uh, I did witness that right out of the box. Any other cigarette stories you care to share for the podcast? No, you know, <laughs> no, it was kind of it, it wasn't many. I mean, it wasn't as bad. You know, once I, I once I grew up and we got to the NFL, I cut back at the University of Miami days. That's another story. You know, that's where I was going. I just didn't know if you wanted to share <laughs> one of those stories. Yeah. Well, no, <laughs> no, not that one. While we got you, there was a controversy in the Saints-Rams game. And was curious what your thoughts were with the no call on the obvious pass interference. And how would you react to something like that if you're in if you're in Sean Payton's shoes? Well, you know what? I prob- Sean Payton probably handled it, number one, probably better than I would have. You know, I mean, he... He obviously expressed his disappointment in the call on and on. I mean, I, I got all that. The other thing, though, you know, I think that, yes, was it a missed call? Yes, was it a terrible call? But you also have to look at the other side of the coin. And I'm looking at that game, and, you know, Michael Thomas, their best receiver, one of the best in the league, you know, he has 36 yards receiving. The Saints had a 13-point lead at home. And they couldn't hold it. The guys, the Saints had the ball four times in the, the fourth quarter, three times, and once in overtime. How many touchdowns did the Saints offense get? Zero. They kicked one field goal. And then at the end, you know, it's overtime, and who gets the ball first? You know, New England got it and went down and scored. The Saints got the ball first, and they end up punting the ball to the Rams. So, I think you got to say, yes, it was a horrible call. I mean, the guy probably loses his job over it, whatever, you know. But on the other side, I thought the Rams did an outstanding job to win that football game in the second half. I, I, don't, I think people are, are kind of sticking their head in the sand a little bit about how well they played the second half defensively. All right, I've got a completely different question for you as we try to bring this back to college football on this college football podcast. The big, you know, topic right now in college football is the transfer portal, which has, you know, seemingly opened up something close to free agency, right, in college football. Though it's unclear if if that many more guys are transferring or it's just now that it's all out in the open. When you were coaching uh, at Pitt, what was your philosophy on transfers? How did you, how did you identify a guy? What's that? Yeah, you know, you know what? I it wasn't like it is today. Let me say that first of all. But I would always resist the kid. If I wanted him, I would, I would do everything I could to block him, to be quite honest with you. And I was, I was selfish about it, and my opinion was, you know what? I've made a commitment to you. I've passed up other recruits because I think you're the type of person we want in this program, and, and you need to make a commitment with, with us. So I was, I was a little tougher on him. We had guys transfer, you know, but I think it's more so now, Stu and Bruce, because what's happened is, 
every and I, I've talked to some people at, at some of the top teams in the country, and everything that's talked about now is how quick you come to our place. We're going to prepare you for the NFL. We're going to get you there as fast as we can. You're going to be a first-round draft pick, on and on and on. So I think that these coaches today, and I would probably be in the same situation, they back themselves into a corner a little bit more because nobody talks about, oh, you know, five years from now you're going to get a great degree here and on. Everybody's just, how quick can you get in here? How quick can we make you a first-round draft pick and get you out? And I really think that that has led hit this transfer role and really has put uh, fuel on the fire, you might say, as, as far as what's happening. Were you out there actively looking for guys you might be able to add to your own roster or only if somebody... Uh, no. Yeah. You, you know what? We got some guys to transfer in. Our assistant coaches would do a good job of keeping in touch with players, but no. It, it wasn't really as, as, as big a deal back then. So it really wasn't that much of a topic. You know, I know um, I, re I remember playing South Florida when Jim Levitt was down there. And I, we were, I think they were like, they were a top 10 team. And I remember talking to Jim Levitt and he made the comment to me that they had 13, I think it was either 22 starters in South Florida were transfer back guys, you know? So he kind of made a living at his program of, recruiting players even though they went to florida georgia auburn or wherever he they stayed on them down there and when the issues came up they would take them back we really didn't do much of that at Pitt. you know i think it was really you know we we, we were getting the, the high school kids pretty good then and and that was kind of the basis for how we were going to approach it everybody did it a little bit differently all right coach we appreciate your insight you still talk to aaron donald by the way you know what i have not talked i i, I no, I haven't talked to Aaron and Carissa Thompson did an interview with him about a month ago for our NFL kickoff show. And through, through Carissa, obviously we, we communicated back and forth, but no, I, I really haven't reached out to him and he, and he hasn't either, you know, but I follow him and I've sent him a few texts here or there, but uh, no, he's, uh, uh, you know, in, in big games, whether it's a national championship for college or, you know, a Super Bowl for the NFL, your big players have to play big in big games. And I think for the Rams to play, yeah, Aaron Donald's got to play big. I think he will. All right. So you're predicting the Rams to win? I, I'm pick, I would not. If you ask me to bet on this game, I would not bet against Brady. But if you're picking me to pick a winner, uh, I, would, I think the Rams are going to find a way to win. I do. I don't know why or how. I just think that their talent on defense rises up in big games like this and i i think they got a lot of talent a lot of guys that can make big plays particularly on their defense that's good they have it still yeah those long-suffering la rams fans could really uh could really use this championship i wow. think wow you know chuck coach chuck Noll used to always say they say coach who's gonna win the super bowl he says the team that scores the most points that's who and he keep walking you know <laughs> <laughs> All that's right, how I feel about this. That's how I feel about this game. Fair enough. All right, Coach. We hope we'll, we'll talk to you before the season rolls around. Enjoy your winter, and I'm, I'm sure you're glad you're not in Chicago this week with uh, with oh, yeah. freezing. Oh yeah. Oh boy. It, yeah, it's uh, it's that's beyond uh, beyond talking about. I have two daughters and six grandkids up there, and it's it, it's been rough. It truly has been rough. But great being on with you, Bruce and Stu. Anytime, we'll do it again. Okay, guys. Talk to you. Awesome. Thanks, Coach. Thank you. 
All right, Stu. As always, it's, it's always a blast to have Coach Wanstat on. Coming out of that, I thought we'd play a little game with you, Stu. I got an idea. So we're talking about the great Aaron Donald and how he was a three-star guy. So he was ranked the 30th best defensive tackle in his class. When I went back and looked at some of these guys, please tell me you're not Googling and searching this at this time. There was, there was a few names I recognize, and a lot of people are like, whoa, I haven't heard that name in a long time. So I'm going to throw out a name. You tell me if you can remember where this person signed or played college football. Fair enough? It's a def- So there's a defensive... Well, he said he was an offensive tackle at the time. No, he was so. a defensive tackle. Defensive Aaron tackle, Donald, yeah. ranked higher than Aaron Donald. In no, the- I'm going to give you everybody, and let's see how many you can name out of the 29 guys ranked above Jeez. Aaron Donald. Okay. Okay, here we go. Number one, Dominique Easley. Where'd he go? Florida. Number two, George Uko. Uh, I'm going to say USC. Okay. I was Number right. Number three... Yes. Number three is an easy one. Lewis Nix. Notre Dame. Number four, Ricky Haimuli. Ah, that sounds does sound vaguely familiar. Was he USC too? No, he was Oregon. I don't think ah, I would have got that right. either. Number five, Ashton Dorsey. Oof. Don't remember him. Texas. Number six, Kelsey Quarles. Oh, Kelsey Quarles went to um, that, uh, that one I know. Uh, no, I don't. Tennessee? South Carolina. South Carolina. I knew it was the SEC East. Number seven, Garrison Smith. Nope. He is Georgia. Number eight, Taylor Bible. Now, some of this would be if you would ask me this, you know, in 2015. I'd no, I get, get it. It's right. been a long time. Yeah. But yeah. No, I get uh, it. I don't. The one you just said, Bible? No, don't know that one. <laughs> He's Texas. Number nine, Leon Orr. He went to Florida. Okay. Right. Number 10, Jeffrey Whitaker. Uh, Jeffrey Whitaker was SC? No, he was Auburn. I think I would have remembered that one. I'm not sure why I'd have remembered it. Yeah. Number 11. Some of them, like, once you say it, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. Number 11, Cassius Marsh. Uh, Notre Dame. No, UCLA. Heavily tattooed UCLA guy who's in the NFL. Number 12. I'm starting to wonder, worry that people are going to think I don't actually follow college football. No, this is, some of these names are not. It's okay. So don't Google now to try to save face. No, I'm not. Number 12, Todd Chandler. Uh, somewhere in the SEC. No, he's, he's from Miami. He was, he had, and I don't remember a lot of this story now because this falls into the category of where you're at. So he played at USF, but he was committed to Miami. There was some, some drama or something he put out. I remember there was social media weird stuff on that one. Uh, number 13, Sione Potuai. Either Utah or Oregon. Washington. Yeah. I do not remember him, but I know the Potuai name because Benning Potuai is there now. Number 14, Calvin Barnett. Uh, Calvin Barnett. Again, these are guys who at the time I was well aware of. And now like time, time is meshing, messing with my brain. Uh, I can't remember. Arkansas. Yes. Num- number 15, Mike Thornton. No idea. No idea. Georgia. Number 16, Eric Humphrey. Somewhere in the Pac-12? No, he's from Dallas. He played at o- Oklahoma. I'm with you on that one. Number 17, Evan Hales. No, I no idea. <laughs> Penn State. Number 18, Chase Rome. Nope. Nebraska. Number 19, Ivan Robinson. Nope. Texas A&M. Number 20, Kenneth Carter. Did any of these guys pan out? This is crazy. <laughs> number 20, <laughs> Kenneth Carter. Nope. Auburn. Number 21, Carlton Martin. Nope. 
Ole Miss. Number 22, Brian Jones. Byron oh. Jones. I'm sorry, Byron Jones. Uh, it's too generic a name. I can't, I can't place it. Arkansas. Number 23, Frashed Hunter. Come on, you're making these up now. That would be pretty impressive if I could make up that name. I don't think I can help you with this one because it doesn't look like he signed anywhere. Okay, I feel better about that one then. Yeah. Number 24, Daquan Jones. Uh, Daquan Jones did play, but I can't remember where. Penn State. Number 25, this one I think I would have gotten, Jonathan Hankins. Oh, yeah, uh, he was uh, UNC. Georgia. No, no. no. Jonathan Hankins uh, was an Ohio, Ohio State. Ohio State. Was, That's right. Yeah. That he I he I do remember. I remember Jonathan Hankins. Number twenty six, Tavadis Glenn. Nope. Miami. I don't remember him either. Number twenty seven, Denzel McCoy. Uh, I remember the name, but I don't remember where. Georgia Tech. Number twenty eight, Calvin Smith. Yeah. Help. Yeah, you know, it's funny as I'm looking, I'm like, whose logo is that? <laughs> it's New Mexico. New Mexico. <laughs> um, number 29, Daniel Noble. Nope. Oklahoma. And then number 30 is Aaron Donald. So obviously I expected it to be a lot of misses, but I didn't. what I didn't hear in there anywhere was any, other than Aaron Donald, any like true star defensive tackles that came out of that. Well, Jonathan Hankins was... I think drafted pretty highly, but other than that, we, you know who, who who where are the all Americans from that class? No, I mean there's a lot of uh, I don't know. There's a lot of guys who seem to like either fall through the cracks or were solid players or backups. No, I'm with you on that. I mean, it's uh, it's interesting to look through this group because I mean, you know, easily obviously was really you know, was highly touted and productive at Florida. Lewis Nix had a good career. but then, And, you know, Kelsey Quarles, I think, was a good player in the SEC. But some of these other ones, you just start looking, and you're like, man, you know, I've, you know, Cassius Marsh was productive at UCLA, but just some of these other guys, just like, I, I don't know if fans outside of their own schools would remember them. What I mostly remember about Lewis Nix is that going into the Notre Dame-Alabama game, a coach told me that they thought he was gonna that he was gonna dominate, and they just completely shut him down. Yeah, yeah. So much for that. Okay. Well, that was my little exercise and whatever it was. Okay. While we were recording the interview with Dave Wanstead, some some breaking news came across the ticker. Missouri got hammered by the NCAA for a scandal involving a tutor. I remember hearing about it at the time. It just I had no idea that there was any potential for this kind of ramifications. A tutor who did coursework for 12 athletes uh, over a year across baseball, softball, and football has resulted in Missouri football getting a postseason ban for this coming year. And I had a chance to glance through it, and my initial reaction is just, seems pretty harsh. No question, the tutor went rogue, the tutor cheated, the tutor... Did, uh, did kids work, but it's just, we just went through the UNC situation that was just dwarfed this in terms of the extent of the academic fraud and the amount of time it took place over. And UNC, of course, lawyered up and, and managed to skate for that entire scandal that took place, I believe, over 18 years. 
and UNC and Missouri, you know, admitted it, turned it in, and is going to pay a huge price for it. Yeah, I mean, my initial read was that was the same thing. It's like you know, remember that joke, and I don't know if it was a if it was a Jerry Tarkanian line or whoever it was. It was like the NCAA was so mad at at X, they yep. punished you know Tarleton State. They punished Cleveland State. Yeah, and that's what this feels a little bit like. No. It absolutely feels that way. I think that, you know, first of all, even before this ruling, I mean, even earlier this week, I'd seen some coverage of a push the NCAA is making to basically try to close that UNC loophole where, you know, basically because it wasn't just athletes, it was, you know, those classes were available to anybody, though certainly it was disproportionately athletes. The school argued that this isn't the NCAA's jurisdiction. We get to decide what is or isn't you know, constitute fraud on our, our uh, campus. And amazingly, gallingly, they defended the secretary grading the papers and all that. They want they don't want that to happen again. Uh, they want to close that loophole. They want to, you know, enforce tighter academic restrictions. But, you know, the committee, on this is the problem with NCA infractions cases. There's different people that judge each one. I don't know how much of the committee has turned over since UNC, that was a couple of years ago now. I know, obviously, Sankey's not the chairman anymore. And they, it's just, there's no, um, there's not a lot of sentencing guidelines. It's just completely up to them. I think the most, the, the most uh, amusing part is that they hit the tutor with a 10-year show cause penalty. This tutor cannot tutor athletes for 10 years. It's, it just, it boggles the mind. It's a little farcical. I mean, because in this report, you know, the NCAA says that the tutor was not specifically directed to work for athletes and yet this punishment i don't know it again it just it's it's that really murky bizarre ncaa system of justice where i feel like there is no sweet spot and i don't know how much you could come away from them and think they like no matter what they do and maybe this is a this is a a problem with us is a little bit not as much the ncaa but to some degree is that no matter what they do you you never hear somebody go yeah the ncaa got it right yeah, the NCAA got it right because they've already set up this kind of flawed system, whether they whether there's no way around it of, as you say, because different people sit on different committees. Not all cases are entirely different. You know, they take out they you know, they took it out on USC because they felt like USC was not being transparent. And then other times when people are being transparent and trying to own up to things, it seems like the NCAA specifically holds that against them when they yeah, at other times have gotten caught in the gray area of their own kind of weight get this i just uh looked up the press release they sent out about about a teleconference they're doing and the person that's going to be speaking on it is david roberts chief hearing officer for the panel and i remember that special advisor to the president of usc hey wait a minute doesn't the usc not have a president right now yeah and dave roberts came was i believe if i remember correctly was brought in in the wake of all of the uh mess that came after the reggie bush mike garrett stuff so, so the school that got hammered by the NCAA a long time ago is now doing the hammering for others. Well, maybe it's, you know, USC doesn't need a quarterback right now, but maybe Kelly Bryant could transfer there. Yeah, so there was a lot of Twitter buzz about that right off the bat. Would Kelly Bryant just go right back into the transfer portal? But I can't imagine he picked Missouri based on, you know, so, some thought that he was going to compete for the national championship. He, for, you know, he picked it as the place he thought would help him get ready for the NFL. So I don't, I don't know why this would change that necessarily. 
yeah, and I'll be honest, I'd be lying if I said I knew the specifics on his thought process of why he chose Mizzou and Derek Dooley and that, you know, there. So who knows? Now, some other guys, I mean, yeah, it, it, in this new system, uh, it pretty much opens it up for just like with Ole Miss. I mean, anybody could transfer off that roster and use that as a as the reason why they should be able to play immediately. And there's some good players on there. So we'll see what uh, what comes of it. Obviously, as, as we say, we're just taping this and this happened right at the beginning of it. So another great moment in the wheels of NCAA justice. Should we, Oh, well, there's one thing we wanted to bring So last week, obviously you had Ryan Abraham on to talk about SC and all the mess going on there. And they now do have an offensive coordinator. It is Graham Harrell, uh, another former Texas tech quarterback. They, they lost Kingsbury. So they went and got, got a different one. Uh, your thoughts on the hire. I think it's pretty good. Uh, you know, he's really well thought of by people who have worked with him. He is, you know, he left behind a really good quarterback uh, in Mason Fine. Our, our colleague Chris Vanini's done some really good stories out of, out of Denton, Texas on that program. The, the part that's a little tricky with it is, so what was appealing for uh, uh, with him, and he was, we should add, like, he was, Mac Brown really wanted him at North Carolina to be the offense coordinator, and he was considered and then he decided to stay in denton and there was interest in him by mike gundy at oklahoma state and then they hired the oc from princeton in this case his work with quarterbacks is something that a lot of people are very intrigued by him the challenging part is so i from my understanding is he's probably going to get to bring one off-field staffer but i thought and i thought this was cliff kingsbury is you know you're bringing an air raid guy to run the offense but He's not even getting to bring, you know, his old line coach or whatever he gets to pick. Cliff was going to get to bring a running backs coach. But just in terms of, a, you know, you're going to have to teach these guys the system. And then on top of it, when you look at USC's roster or recruiting class, arguably the two best players they're signing are tight ends. Well, tight ends are something you usually don't see in, you know, an air raid system. So I think there's going to be some finessing, and, and we'll see how it works. You know, if you're Graham Harrell, I think, you know, my understanding is he's getting a two-year contract. I think he's quadrupling his salary. So that, uh, you know, makes a lot of sense on, on his side. But, you know, you're going into a place where the coach is on the hottest seat in the country, and there's a lot of pressure around there. So, so uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this, you know, air raid hybrid or whatever they're going to call it, goes at usc because i think the problems are bigger than just the offense there let's be honest there's problems are are throughout that place you say that there's not room for tight ends in the air raid offense have you forgotten jace amaro you know look i mean i leach didn't have him. some other guys did you know cliff had one there and they play him differently i mean it's not like you're an inline blocker i just remember him being Um, i think the the top receiver on one of uh, kingsbury's texas tech teams yeah, and I remembered it actually became like a little source of, of drama where was he considered a tight end or not as it related to the Mackey Award. You know, he was he was actually one of the bigger recruits they signed in Lubbock in Cliff's time there, and he was very productive. I mean, if you look right now, I mean, this past year, Dana Holgerson had good, good tight ends at West Virginia, but Dana's kind of, I wouldn't say broken from the air raid, but he's kind of really evolve some to 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 work with the personnel he has and and who knows maybe graham will do that here let's get to the mailbag as always you can send your emails to the audible pod at gmail.com 
Is it raining in your house? It is pouring in there, here. Yeah, got it, got it. Ian McFarlane, regular uh, listener and, and contributor, who, <laughs> I just noticed, asked for a different Fox Sports analyst to come on. Bruce and Stewart, I enjoyed Bruce's interview last week with Manny Diaz, particularly given his unique rise to the position. But considering that he was on the staff last season, does the puke bucket vibe Miami is sending out feel odd to anyone else or rather more odd than a normal puke bucket? Keep up the good work. Bring back Petros. We should bring back Petros at some point. But I, I just really admire that he picked up on something we've brought up from time to time over the years. The annual new coach offseason puke bucket meme. Do you remember where that one, the original puke bucket? Yeah, uh, it goes so far back, I'm almost embarrassed. It was when Mike Stoops got to Arizona. That's right, yeah. The idea yeah. that, yeah, you know, they've never worked hard. It, it probably, frankly, would not go over as well now, given Jordan McNair, given many of the other situations like that. But, yeah, the idea that they worked them so hard that they had to have puke buckets set up all over the weight room. Well, I think, and, and it, you know, as I saw that, the puke buckets thing was, it was really like, hey, all of us, in the national media are going to go do our pilgrimage to this one place and do some version of the same story. That's and correct. so, uh, in this regard, I, I think the, the part I would say to Ian is what's, what's different is I think when Miami and, and Blake James wanted to go through this hiring process as quick as it was, what sold them on Manny Diaz was this is the one part of the program on the field that they feel like was right. And they wanted it to carry over to the whole part of the program. Like if they could have the rest of the program like operate with the energy that the the defense had, I think they felt like they'd be in good shape. And so that's why they went after Manny Diaz. And look, he's got his work cut out for him. I mean, I I think you had asked me this maybe in November, early December about Mark Rick. Do you think they'll ever get back to where they were last year? And I didn't think they would. I was not, you know, I I didn't want to bash the hire because I get why they made it. And I think he did a lot of good things, but ultimately what they need going forward is a different level of energy. And I think you see, you're seeing that from Manny Diaz. Now, you know, how good is Tate Martell going to be as a quarterback? I mean, that's going to be a big factor in all this, how good, you know, it's ultimately the, the players you recruit and bring in, I mean, you can develop them and everything, but that's going to be the difference. I think whether you become plant, you know, can challenge Clemson or you're just a good team in, in a bad division in the ACC. Next question. Yeah. There's a chart here from John Webb. Bruce and Stu, I've heard all the talking heads credit Clemson's success to superior talent and tons of money. However, the 247 composite lists Clemson's recruiting rankings of the guys who played in 2018 as, and here it is, 2014, ranked 16th, 2015, ranked 9th, 16th, ranked 11th. 2017 ranks 16th and 2018 ranks 7th. That's an average of 11.8. As most of the research I've seen lists Clemson as around 26th or 27th in athletic department revenue. What gives? John, good work. Stu, what gives? Well, I'll tell you what gives. And I actually talked to Debo Swinney about this when I was there last spring. And first of all, by the way, those are hardly, you know, embarrassing recruiting rankings. But the reason you don't see them necessarily ranked as high in those team rankings is they don't sign big classes, uh, which, you know, we've talked about many of the things that are unique to Clemson versus some of the other football powerhouses. They don't sign, you know, they don't get commitments from 30 kids knowing that they're going to whittle down their roster. 
I was just trying to pull up the size. So in uh, 2016, Clemson signed 21 players as opposed to 25 for Alabama, 27 for LSU, 25 for Florida State, etc. So you think, okay, well, that was a small class. They'll probably sign a big class the next year. Uh, nope. 14 the next year. So 21 one year, 14 the next. So it's just going to be really hard for you to get ranked, you know, fourth in the country when you only signed 14 kids. Now that class where they only had 14 kids, two of them were five stars and eight of them were four stars. Who, who, was, that, who was in that 14 class? T. Higgins, Hunter okay. Johnson, now at Northwestern. A.J. Terrell, starter on the uh, team this past year. He had a touchdown, the first yeah. touchdown, right? He Yes, he had the pick six. Amari Rogers, key receiver. Good player. Uh, defensive end Justin Foster has not done much yet, but maybe he'll be part of this next wave. Uh, another defensive end, Jordan Williams. Cornerback, Lee Anthony Williams Jr. Uh, here's a guy whose name you might recognize, Travis Etienne. Offensive lineman, Matt Bockhorst. Defensive end, Logan Rudolph. Tackle, Blake Vinson. Vinson, quarterback, Chase Bryce. Tackle, Noah DeHaan. Safety, Balin Spector. Now, that is the 2017 class, so kids who will be in their third years going into this next year. So, you know... They sign smaller classes, but they're full of four and five stars. And, you know, they just, for whatever reason, to this point at least, have not had as much attrition, I guess, as a lot of other schools that recruit those caliber players. The money thing, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't have a great answer for that. I mean, I think it would be hard for any ACC team to be very high on that list he's talking about because they just don't bring in as much revenue from the conference as uh, SEC or Big Ten. All I know is 80,000 people pack that stadium every week, and they actually have one of the more uh, unique and, and famous booster programs, IPTE. Familiar with IPTE? I am familiar with it. Do you know what it stands for? I do not. IPTE is, stands for I pay 10 a year, but I think a 10, lot of those... 10 million or 10,000? Yeah, I think a lot of those guys pay a lot more than $10 a year. So they've always had a pretty, pretty great network of boosters. That's why they're able to pay their coaches so well. They pay, they have the second highest um, assistant coach, you know, combined assistant coach salaries in the country last year. Michael asks, uh, Stu and Bruce, thanks for putting together such a good product week in and week out. Thank you, Michael. Despite the presence or absence of great skill players, the guys in the trenches can make or break a team with Oklahoma Losing most of its offensive line, either graduation or juniors declaring early, will Jalen Hurts suffer if they fail to replace their Joe Moore award-winning line, or is he good enough to overcome a mediocre offensive line? That's a good question. So I had a conversation with somebody I work with about OU, and he's right. You're going to lose four offensive linemen. The one guy back is Creed Humphrey, who's a really good young young player in the middle of the line. Now the question is, and, and Bill, Bill Biedenboe, the offensive line coach, has done a great job there. I mean, he's a big reason why they helped, you know, won that Joe Moore award. But so you look at what Jalen Hurts has there. Rambo had a big bowl game. Obviously, you know, C.D. Lamb is a stud. Calcaterra is a really good player. And they have two good running backs. I, what I'm interested in is Jalen Hurts, I think people forget how big of a guy he is. You know, the last two quarterbacks who won Heisman's there – you know, it's not like Baker's small, he's short, but but obviously Kyler Murray's small, and I think I think you may see him run the ball more than what the people in the Big 12 are used to seeing from a quarterback in a while. It's not to say, obviously, Oklahoma, you know, used to have great running quarterbacks, but 
but I think you could see that. And that could be the kind of the change up to this offense a little bit for Lincoln Riley as they have to get a new offensive line sorted out. They've had a pretty good history over a long period of time there with developing offensive linemen. Uh, obviously, this is kind of the first time under Lincoln Riley as head coach to go through that kind of transition. But I feel like Oklahoma is one of those schools you can generally feel pretty good about um, the state of the offensive line. Can I ask you this? So, um, so again, this is something that, you know, I had a conversation with earlier this week about it. As I would rank the Big 12 now, I'm seeing it. Maybe this is, you know, the, the luster of beating Georgia and looking impressive in doing it and Sam Ellinger and having Colin Johnson back. And I know they're losing guys on defense, but I could see it as Texas one, Oklahoma two going into the year. Is that crazy? Or do you see? Uh, I think that might have been the case before they got Jalen Hurts. But now that they do, and, you know, you've got a very experienced and, you know, proven quarterback. They and do have 10 starters back on defense for Alex Grinch to work with. Yep, with Alex Grinch. I think the feeling is if they can just get even some improvement on defense. Remember, they've won the Big 12 four years in a row now. So they're still the team to beat. But I don't think Texas is that far behind. And in fact, let, you know, they played two games last year. They split them. And even the second one where Oklahoma did win was pretty close. So, you know, Texas has to replace, I believe, eight starters on defense. You, know, you don't want... You don't want to look at the Georgia Bowl game and say, well, that's exactly the team that's going to be coming back. You don't want to judge too much off of one game. But, hey, they had a good season. So I do think that those two will be, I mean, I think they'll both be in the preseason top 10, but I assume Oklahoma will still be higher. Okay. Uh, Next question. This is from Brandon Frizz. He says, like Frisbee. Thank you. Uh, Hey, guys, love the podcast. Thanks for all your handiwork. I think he means handiwork. I love the hire of Jeff Collins at Georgia Tech. What would be a successful first year look like for him, and how high can that program go? I'm a big fan of the hire as well. I gave it a very high grade. It's just hard to say. Uh, This is one of those situations where how can you predict what the transition is going to look like when you're taking a program that's been running the triple option for a decade, you know, taking a roster that was recruited to run that specific system, and trying to transition it into the kind of offense Jeff Collins is going to want to run. So what success going to look like in the first year is I think uh, that that transition goes fairly smoothly and they win as many or more games than they did last season. I believe they were 7-16 and last season. Mm -hmm. So some sort of improvement on that. Look, anybody can win that division. Uh, Pitt won it last year and finished 7-7. and You know, Miami, I do think, will be better under Manny Diaz. How much better, we'll see. So you've got coaching change at UNC. I guess Bronco, we shouldn't underestimate Bronco Bronco Mendenhall at Virginia. Virginia Tech, frankly, is kind of a mess right now. Every day there's a new kid transferring out of there. So the ceiling is high, to answer his question. I don't see any reason why Georgia Tech can't contend in that division on a regular basis. This is something that surprised me, and I'd be lying if I said I knew it. So it's something I... When I looked at Paul Johnson, I came across it. Do you know how many times they finished in the top 25 in the last nine years? Probably more than people would think. I mean, he had a lot of good seasons there. Maybe four? Once. That really? surprised me. I would have thought it was what you wait, said. Wait, 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 wait. But they went to the Orange Bowl one year, so clearly that, that was, was the year. They had, they finished eighth every other year. Even the year they went nine and four and won the Tax Slayer Bowl, they were not ranked in the top 25. What was the time frame you gave? 
since 2010, in the last nine years. Okay, so you left off the year, I think the year before that. It was also an Orange Bowl. It was. ACC year. Uh, yeah, that was that, a decade ago. Okay, so that doesn't speak so highly. I mean, I remember the team, the team you're talking about, that went the, the 2014 team. That was they beat Georgia. They almost beat uh, Jameis Winston in the ACC title game, and then they beat Dak Prescott in the bowl game. That was a really good team. But you're saying outside of that one year, they were pretty mediocre. I, I'm not saying that. I, I was just like, I guess the rankings are saying that because I, I thought they were better like i would have thought they would have had like you know like you said probably four maybe three years where they finished somewhere between 20 and 25 but they didn't they had one terrific year and that was it with that you know i'd always heard from guys who recruit the state of georgia they thought georgia tech was a sleeping giant now some of that may have changed a little bit with kirby smart going in there into georgia because of how well he's recruited but i do think this is an interesting hire and i you know to me, it's one of the more interesting hires of this cycle was Jeff Collins there because he is a ultra high energy. He's a, a he's an Atlanta guy or a Georgia guy, and he's you know he's been at a lot of places. Everyone I know who's ever coached with him has been impressed by him. So it's not going to be easy there, but this is an interesting one. I really think you know like like Brandon says, I love the hire too. I'm curious how it's going to work out. And we wrap up once again with some candidates for greatest college offense. I don't know what parameters we we. I guess we've said all time, but realistically, it's last 30 years or so. This person I do wish had given us the pronunciation or, or the phonetic spelling. Gurit, he says, I've listened to the pod and would like to thank you for the insight and perspective. I've already subscribed and rated and rated well. Thank you. I'm biased since I'm a Husky alum, but I wanted to nominate the 1991 Washington offense. Billy Joe Hobart, Mark Brunel was injured and was still on the team and should help my case at quarterback. Deploying Coffin as a freshman at running back. Mark Bruner, Aaron Pierce at tight end, both had decent NFL careers. Ed Cunningham and Lincoln Kennedy on the line. And though none of the wide receivers made a splash in the NFL, each, including Joe Kralik, were extremely effective in college, especially McKay and Mario Bailey. Were you in Seattle by any chance at that time? No, that was like five years before I got out there. That was a talented all-around team. Yeah, I remember thinking Napoleon Kaufman was like so explosive and fun to watch. I don't know. Those guys he mentioned were, were actually were good NFL tight ends. I don't know if this would have been first come to mind, you know, just because when you look at the firepower. I mean, when we were going back and talking about it, and I hate to be USC-centric, but I think back to, you know, Reggie Bush, Lendo White, and some of the skill guys they had, it seemed on a different level. Yeah, I don't think uh, this team would fit quite in that. It's very good. I don't think they would quite fit in the category of not just the SC team, but the one that our other reader brought up uh, a couple weeks ago about the Kajana Carter, Kerry Collins, Penn State team. Kyle Brady team, yeah. Yeah. Uh, here's an interesting one from DH. Barry Sanders overshadowed everything, but compare the offensive efficiency of the 1988 Oklahoma State offense to anybody. They scored at will. Hartley Dykes and Barry Sanders were first-rounders, and Gundy was the Big t- Big Eight's all-time top passer. It is pretty crazy, the, the, the combo there, the one-two combo of having uh, Barry Sanders and Hartley Dykes. Oh, I know, and Hartley Dykes was a freaky, big, huge athlete out there, and obviously Barry Sanders is as good a running back as we've ever seen, so... And I think people forget how good Gundy was, you know, as a quarterback. He wasn't very tall, but he was tough as heck, and he was efficient. By the way, on uh, I think it's Gurjit or Gurjit, his, his, I went back and looked. They were number two in points uh, that year, 41 points a game. So that's saying something. 
you know, I don't know who number one was, but are you able to look up eighty-eight? That team that that uh, DH is referencing averaged forty-nine points a game, led the country in scoring. I mean, you look at some of the numbers they put up down the stretch in the last month of the season. They put sixty-three up on Kansas, forty-nine at Iowa State, forty-five at Texas Tech, and then sixty-two up against the number the fifteenth-ranked Wyoming team, which I imagine was Joe Tiller's team when they crushed them uh, sixty-two to fourteen. They actually that team lost by 21, 63 to 42, lost that Nebraska in a top 10 matchup. And then the other loss was 31, 28 to Oklahoma. Yeah, that that was a heck of a team. You know, what's interesting. I'm just looking at this. Pulled up, I don't know where you pulled it up. I pulled it up on Wikipedia and it lists, you know, date, opponent, ranking, site, TV, result, attendance. Guess how many of Oklahoma State's games were on TV that season? One, three. The bowl, the bowl game. I'm guessing. Yeah, and 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 none until the November fifth game against Oklahoma, which was on ESPN. The Texas Tech game, what, which by did, the way was did like Brando do the do the Wyoming bowl game on the Mizlou Network or something. <laughs> that was on ESPN as well. And then remember Barry Sanders was in Japan at the time they named him the Heisman winner. I do remember that, uh, They yeah. played in the Tokyo Dome in the Coca-Cola Classic against Texas Tech, and that was on CBS. So, you know, another lifetime ago now, but Barry Sanders was doing all these amazing things, and nobody, you know, nobody was seeing other, anything other than the box score the next day. You know what's crazy? If you look at the stats on this, about what a two-man offense this was. So, so Barry Sanders ran for tw- over 2,600 yards, that's 2,300 more than the next most guy on the team, Gerald Hudson. But Hartley Dykes, 74 catches. Next most was 20. Like, it was basically those two guys. Can I throw a little bit more Oklahoma State 88 trivia at you? Sure. Okay, so the head coach was Pat Jones. Do you know who the offensive coordinator was? Uh, 1988. He became a national championship head coach. jeez. Uh, uh, let me think about this. You know it, you're just forgetting. No, I don't. I don't. Um, at Oklahoma State, uh, Les Miles? No. Uh, Les, uh, no. No. Larry Coker. Oh, that's right. I didn't think he was the OC, though. Do you know? Do that you is know, right. Do you know how I, I will always remember that? A little bit of an embarrassing, humbling moment as a young sports writer. I remember at Miami practice before the uh, uh, Nebraska national title game and a little scrum around Larry Coker. And me not knowing my college football history yet, I'm like, have you ever coached a, a, a running back duo like Clinton Portis and Frank Gore? And, you know, Larry Coker's the nicest guy in the world. He's just like, well, actually, you know, I did coach Barry Sanders and Thurman <laughs> Thomas at Oklahoma State. And do you know who their receivers coach was? Uh, one of your all-time favorite coaching figures. David Gibbs. Um, <laughs> one of my all-time favorite coaching figures. No, we're stumping each other Wide receivers coach. So Hartley Dyke's position coach that year was Houston Nutt. Oh, I'm sorry, Houston. I didn't mean to snub you on that. Yeah. How about I know that? you hate Stu. I don't want you to hate me. Keep going. If he can get over <laughs> that thing I wrote all those years ago, we could have him come on and talk about the 88 uh, Oklahoma State team. But, Who else was on that staff? Well, to be honest with you, uh, I have a very incomplete list. I'm sure we could find the complete staff, but this one only lists Larry Coker, Houston Nutt, and offensive line coach Brad Seeley. I think Brad Seeley worked at Miami at once upon a time as well. Um, hmm. 
Okay. Well, we should know who the defensive coordinator was. Brad Seeley is now the special teams coach for the Houston Texans. He's actually had quite a... In fact, that 88 Oklahoma State team was the last time he coached in college. He's been NFL assistant ever since. Hmm. This is cool. I love these off-season mailbags where we get into a little bit of college football history. I actually, uh, this past uh, Monday, I know you did this before, sat down to be interviewed for the ESPN 150. It's the 150th anniversary of college football this year. They're doing this big documentary series, and I'm really excited for it. It made me realize that, you know what it made me realize? And, and some of the stuff they were asking me about, like, you know, games of the century and things like that, is how much we frankly, the playoff overshadows so much in college football now that I feel it's like a little bit unfortunate that like a lot of the things they were asking me about that are truly unique to college football don't get as much attention anymore, whether it's rivalry games, certain other traditions. You know, that game of the century, you know, that used to be every five years or so there'd be a game of the century in college football. But now I don't think we ever use that term because we know one and two are going to play every year. Yeah, I feel like you're you're tr- trending into Tim category a little bit on this. I'm not saying you're wrong, but I feel like well, that's no. A lot if I were Tim category, I'd be angst. like, I'd be angry about it. Like this has ruined everything. I, I don't feel that way. It's just different. You're a little more melancholy. Yeah. As always, send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail dot com, and we'll see you next time. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star review while you're at it. It helps get the word out. Thanks to Trader Joe's for being our presenting sponsor. Our producer is Nick Fink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on iTunes and Spotify. Follow me, Stu, at SL Mandel on Twitter and Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And subscribe to The Athletic if you haven't done so already. You can try it for free, seven-day free trial at theathletic.com slash free trials. So come on, get over here.